This is Positively Mental, sponsored by Fremont Counseling. Fremont Counseling wants to remind everyone that one of the keys to mental health is a good and open relationship with your primary doctor. In addition to their medical screenings and treatment, primary care doctors should be involved with all aspects of health, including mental health. If you're unsure about how to speak with your primary care provider or would like an evaluation immediately, you can contact Fremont Counseling to take advantage of open access hours. You can call Fremont Counseling in Lander at 332-2231 or Riverton at 856-6587 or look up their information at fremontcounseling.com. Exploring mental health and the human mind one episode at a time. This is the Positively Mental Podcast. From the Porter's 10Cast studio, here's professional counselor Lance Godey. Welcome, everyone. I'm Lance Godey here in the Porter's 10Cast studio, and this is Positively Mental. Thanks for joining me as we explore mental health from a positive perspective. For today's podcast, we are going to talk about prevention. And what better way to deal with mental health issues than preventing them from happening in the first place? Whether it be suicide, alcohol, drugs, or even chronic mental health issues, there are steps that you can take to minimize their effect if you take action as early as possible. So to build a case for prevention, let me talk just a little bit about the types of prevention. First, there is primary prevention, where you focus on an issue before it even begins. Next is secondary prevention, where you focus on an issue early in its onset, attempting to catch issues as early as possible before they catch on. And then last is tertiary prevention, where the issues have progressed for some period of time, but can either be slowed or reversed based on the prevention activities. So with that in mind, prevention runs the gamut of things uh, like, oh, maybe immunizations, uh, counseling interventions, but also can focus on community prevention services where policies, programs, and services may aim to improve the health of the entire population or maybe specific uh, subpopulations like youth or elderly. So why do we do prevention beyond the logical reason that is just makes sense? Well, one of the big reasons truly is economic. It saves money and a lot of money in many instances. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But if, if done as primary or secondary prevention, it helps people early. It's just a good thing. Uh, if mental health or physical health conditions are allowed to become chronic, the overall health of the population declines immensely, and it costs a lot of money to treat chronic conditions. So prevention really is the most cost-effective way to impact a person's health. So maybe let's talk a little bit about examples. Uh, Let me give you a few. Uh, The Centers for Disease Control noted that for every dollar spent on childhood immunizations, it saves over $18. And similar results can be found for smoking cessation and alcohol prevention. For one example, there has been a 40% decrease in underage drinking over a 15-year period in Wyoming as a result of local coalitions working with state and federal uh, funding to impact the problem. 
Prevention is also attributed to a massive decline in adults who smoke. Um, Related to that, a recent study has found that tobacco prevention programs could save an astonishing 14 to 20 times the cost of implementing them. A recent study in the American Journal of Public Health found that for every dollar spent by Washington State's Tobacco Prevention and Control Program between 2000 and 2009, more than $5 were saved by reducing hospitalizations for things like heart disease, stroke, respiratory disease, and cancer caused by tobacco use. Over the 10-year period, the program prevented nearly 36,000 hospitalizations, saving 1.5 billion, that's B with a billion with a B, compared to 260 million spent on the program. So again, just a a great cost-effective thing, and it just makes sense. So instead of waiting on an issue to develop and gain a solid hold, let's all think about how we can personally impact ourselves by addressing an issue early. But as part of being part of a community, let's also support those things that that we're attempting to do, those agencies that are attempting to do just that, whether it's groups of citizens or agencies. And, and that brings us to our guest today. On today's podcast, please let me introduce Dick Lefevre. He's a retired counselor from Lander who has been involved in the Fremont County Suicide Prevention Task Force for over 20 years. He's pitch hitting a little bit today for at, at the last minute uh, for Tana Groomsmith. She's our um, Fremont County Prevention Specialist who was unable to make it today. So Dick, thank you for joining me, filling in for Tana, and welcome to Positively Mental. Well, thanks for having me, Lance. It's sure good to be here. You know, this is a topic that's, I guess you could say, vital to the well-being of our community. So I'm pleased to be able to come and speak to it today. Great. So we're talking about prevention and its connection to mental health today. And although I know you are now retired, you are still very involved in prevention. Um, How many years were you actively working as a counselor and how long have you been interested in prevention? Well, it goes on for a ways. I started off two years at the State Penn and Rollins as a psychometrist and counselor. From there, I moved to St. Joseph's Children's Home in Torrington. I was there eight years as a counselor and part-time as a, part of it as an acting program director there. St. Joseph's is a residential program for right. children from all over the state who have emotional and behavioral problems. Sure. Following that, I moved here in, in 1986 and spent 21 years at Fremont Counseling Service as a, as a counselor there. Uh, there I worked with people with substance abuse problems and mental health problems and oftentimes combined problems. Mm-hmm. And got involved with the Suicide Prevention Task Force there. Um, following my, uh, about 15 years ago, I left Fremont Counseling and then spent eight years working for protection and advocacy systems, which is a federally mandated and federally funded law firm to protect and advocate for the rights of people who have disabilities. Then I was able to retire seven years ago. That's great. Pretty nice. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm still involved with the Fremont County Suicide Prevention Task Force. Most recently, and more recently, the Prevention Partnership. The focus is not just on suicide, preventing a wide range of substance abuse and other health damaging behaviors. You know, part of the reason I'm got involved with this is my own extended family. We've lost three people 
to death by suicide. And let me just have a little gr grammar lesson here. Sure. So death by suicide or from suicide is the preferred way to speak about it. We used to talk about suicides or successful suicides. We've been discouraging that. And if I get a chance, I might talk some other language as we go on. But death from or by suicide is the accepted way to talk about that. Mm -hmm. You know, it talks about how they died, and it just doesn't kind of write them off as that was a suicide, okay? Mm -hmm. um, so we don't talk about successful suicides either, okay? Because of seeing those, that, those injuries and how the people in my family were affected by those, those losses, and because of my work, you know, I, when I worked at the pen, I helped carry people off the tears that died from suicide. Um, because of that, you know, I saw, saw the tremendous loss because of my interest in mental health. I decided to get involved, stay involved with the task force after I left. I felt like I was among angels when I was around those devoted, committed people. Right. Um, you know, our, our county ranks near the top of the Wyoming suicide statistics, death from suicide mm -hmm. statistics, and our state ranks at the top of the national statistics. It's a terrible problem here, and the problems that it creates for the people left behind are just immense. You bet. Well, and we're going to talk a little bit more. I know I'm going to bring up a little, give a little opportunity to talk a little bit deeper about suicide prevention. So, but there are undoubtedly a variety of areas of prevention uh, to include most any area of concern, mental health, physical health, alcohol, drugs, tobacco, and suicide. But, you know, focusing on mental health, one of the primary focuses is to demystify the areas of mental health. So let's first talk about depression and ultimately suicide prevention. Tell us a little bit more about suicide prevention in Fremont County, maybe Wyoming, and even beyond. So we have the Suicide Prevention Task Force that I've been involved with, and we've got a lot of things going on. One of the things that comes out of the task force are people who are able to do trainings. We are embarking on trying to develop survivors of suicide loss groups, which will be for the people who are left behind by suicide. Because those people are terribly affected. You know, some people think that that suicide's a very private kind of event, but it's not. You know, it affects it affects it. You know, up to twenty people or more sometimes. You know, right. very personal way. And it affects in ways that sometimes they're not able to work. They have their own depression. One of the terrible things that happens is one of the manifestations of suicide contagion is the people who die, the people they leave behind. Well, for instance, the children of someone who dies from suicide before that child is 18 is like five times as likely to die from suicide themselves. You know, people that are thinking about dying from suicide might think that they'll get over it. I don't matter. You know, nobody cares about me. Sure, sure. But the fact is they do care. That death from suicide is a more personal kind of loss than just about any other right. kind of loss. Sure. And people don't get over it. I've had colleagues who had lost a parent to suicide when they were a child, people my age who are still not over that terrible loss. So we've at the very end of every uh, podcast, I, I utilize and um, advertise the, the, the National Lifeline number and really try to emphasize that not only at every time, but we've had specific uh, podcasts on, on suicide prevention. It's interesting to me that the, the Wyoming 
is in a process of trying to better develop their lifeline process, uh, even though there is a national number. The interesting part is, is that national number doesn't necessarily connect to Wyoming. So when someone calls that number, they don't have a Wyoming connection. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And what that means is that the people that respond to those calls will not know the kinds of resources that we have where people could go to get help with their suicidal thoughts or urges. And so with that, you know, people may not get the best referral. I see here on this Wyoming Lifeline stats that out of two and a half million calls that the Lifeline gets, almost 4,700 of them come from Wyoming. Mm. Well, that's interesting. You know, I was visiting with Tana Groomsmith, who I'm sitting in for today. Right. She surprised me. She said that in Wyoming, every 56 hours, somebody dies from suicide. Mm. And that if you look at these calls, there are about four calls for every, it looks to me like there's more than four calls there. Right. For every person you know, right. who dies, who eventually dies by suicide. Right. There's many more that don't call. Right. That's, that's the enough. issue. And in, in making it, either easier or having that closeness connection. I mean, it's important that we have a means to help. And I think the I, that's one of the reasons why I included it every in every podcast. I really want it out there and make sure that people know that there's a number that they can call. There are professionals out there. What we need to do then is make it even more relevant for Wyoming residents. But you know, some of some of our listeners are not listening in Wyoming. Those states have, you know, it's a national process. Every state has some level of be able to respond, but we just need to do a better job in Wyoming. Right, and it's going to be tough because our state budgets are shrinking. But right. you know, in a state that's at the top of the national stats, I think it's well worth our money. And as We've pointed out we save money by doing that. You know, suicide loss is terribly expensive as well as just the personal kind of loss. Right, right. It's not entirely an economic loss. It's a personal loss that you indicated, you know, 20 or more family members, maybe even more, are affected by that that loss. Yeah. Um, You know, I think in, in... Looking at some of that, what what else you ta- you mentioned trainings? Uh, tell us a little bit about things like assist and QPR, mental health first aid. Right. So those are trainings that are provided from uh, people who are members of our suicide prevention task force. One of those is Elk Sage out at uh, the Northern Arapahoe Suicide and Meth Prevention Program. Tana Groomsmith provides some of the training. We have other trainers. But we've got some program, a program coming online for which we want to make sure there are trainers, but we want to open that training to other people. QPR, question, persuade, and refer, gives you three specific steps. Question, are you thinking about suicide? Well, let's do something about it, and here's where you go. Right, right. Um, mental health first aid, you know, assist are a little more broadly based, take a little longer to train people. One of the projects that we've got coming online is we want to make survivors of suicide loss groups, support groups available in a lot of our communities. And we want the people that lead those to have some training in suicide, specific training, suicide sure. prevention right. training efforts. So you'll, we're going to refer the, or get them involved in either assist or um, mental health first aid. And those are going to be open to other people too. Right. But our trainers are also able to go provide trainings for groups an industry, mm-hmm. um, a fraternal or civic organization. 
And probably the best way for any listener to to find out more about that, whether they're in Wyoming or elsewhere, there's always seems to be someone either at the county level or the state level that's involved with uh, prevention. So, you know, here in Fremont County, contacting uh, Tana at the Fremont County Prevention um, office through the Department of Public Health uh, right. is her office. Uh, but other states, uh, you know, it's really just a matter of getting on and look, you know, doing a Google search or a phone phone number search for looking for local prevention services. I mean, you mentioned it, uh, QPR, Assist, Mental Health First Aid. Uh, if you want to know more, you got to call and find out or just, you know, watch your, watch your newspaper, look for uh, those announcements that come up. Uh, as they come up, because they do come up. There is more and more of those prevention efforts going on. Right, and those are very practical kinds of efforts to teach people the the specific skills. You've mentioned ASSIST, which is Applied Skills. and I've got it written out here because I'm never sure about my uh, (laughs) mnemonics here. Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Training. It's applied. You learn how to do it. You get to practice in the group. I think one of the the things that I, I've gone through the assist training myself, and and even as a as a mental health counselor, it's good to recognize, but it's even for non counselors to recognize that it is very important to address suicidal ideation directly. Asking people, are you uh, in, uh, thinking about harming yourself? Right. Uh, there's, I think, a, a norm out there, a belief system out there that asking makes it worse, and in reality, it's reverse. That asking brings it down, brings the risk down. Right, and I usually coach people, don't ask. You're not thinking about suicide, are you? No, ask it directly. Yeah. Are you thinking about suicide? If you ask, you're not thinking about suicide, are you? People can very easily toss, oh, no, I'm not thinking about that. Right. Ask directly. Ask directly. Yep. And, and it's, not a, it's not an increase in risk. It actually brings the risk down. True. Yep. And it's the question you don't want to ask, but if you haven't asked it and there's something goes wrong, right. you'll wish you had. Right. And if you don't know for sure how to ask, go through one of the trainings. Reach out. If you say to yourself you really know or you really want to be able to ask that question and to be more involved in that environment, just reach out to one of the prevention professionals in your community and ask to go to a training. And they want to do more and more of those trainings. The more people we have out there that are comfortable, that's why prevention works, is it gets the information out there and it brings the risk down. It sure does. Yep. You know, that's an awfully important lesson we want to pass along. Absolutely. So the, the Fremont County Prevention Coalition, you mentioned a, a group here in Fremont County has worked a great deal in tobacco, um, alcohol, other drugs. Um, any other areas in, in, those, in those categories that you've learned about that you would love to share with, with the listeners? Well, there's a couple that have some nice success stories with them. The Wyoming Survey Statistical Analysis Center, WISAC, has a nicely done um, 30-minute video that you can find online if you'll go to WISAC. And it talks about efforts in this state to reduce underage drinking. You know, it's, it's a success story. Mm-hmm. 55% of high school students were reporting they drank in the last 30 days in 1999. Well, in the 15 years that followed that, they re- that was reduced to 31%. You know, when I first got into the... I first went to work for Fremont Counseling. Part of my job was as a prevention specialist. And what was recognized as how to do it in that dark age was 
you know, to show people pictures of the pills and tell them the awful things it did, you know, not much happened. Right. But, you know, as people got to looking at it, putting a public health perspective, they got to looking at all the things that make it possible for kids to drink. And so there are widespread kinds of, effort, you know, campaign, starting with community needs assessment, you know, gathering the forces and building the capacity to train the retail liquor vendors, bartenders, changing community events so they just don't didn't center on consuming alcohol, media campaigns, compliance checks of retailers. And initially, they very often failed those compliance checks until they began training their employees. Um, server training, having police present at community events, things that... I had never realized, you know, you see those changes, you know, the wrist, you know, present your ID and get a wristband at a Lander Live concert or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. areas where, you know, alcohol availability is reduced. So that's been part of the, one of the neat kinds of success stories. I want to throw in things like closing drive-up windows. You know, I always think it's worthwhile telling that I had clients tell me, the drive-in window, it makes it, you don't, if when you, you're too drunk to walk into the out the liquor store, you can drive up to the window and they'll serve you across the counter. Well, we've, they're, they're pretty much closed in this state. And we've got some success stories. You know, those fewer kids that are drinking means that we've got fewer accidents, more lot, more lives that are saved, not just the people that are drinking too. Sure, sure. So, yeah, there's a big cultural change in making that happen. Some of the norms in our community had to change. Um, it's been a long time since I heard a story of a parent giving alcohol or marijuana to a kid for a birthday or Christmas gift. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, even as the state funding has dropped in the last couple of years, you know, some of those efforts are still paying off, and we still see those rates of underage drinking declining. I think that norming, you mentioned the norms, and and that seems to have had, in my perception, in my time, because I was on the the coalition for a number of years, and and really that norming effort to really address what the community believes to be the issue and what is actually the issue. That a lot of times uh, communities, individuals even, overshoot what the problem is like they they or they well maybe it's undershoot and actually they find out it's worse or they overshoot it and find out it's less to to help them understand and educate them through a norms a norms program really has seemed to have you know you see billboards you see posters and stuff that are out that really help them understand what the reality is and then they start saying oh that's a problem and then they start changing their behavior, whether it's through compliance checks. You mentioned a number of things. That really has seemed for me to had a big effect is when you have a belief system and you challenge that belief system with facts, hopefully that has an impact to recognize, okay, we need to do something about that. Yeah, and I, and I saw that grow over the years that I was involved with prevention at Fremont Counseling. You know, initially you'd hear some really, I hate to use Judgmental words like ignorant attitudes about that, but that's you know just what kids do, you know, as they drink. Right. But eventually, you know, you see some kind of sophistication. Seems like a judgmental word too, you know, as people start to understand how those things happen in their right. community. Well, they just don't necessarily know any better. Right. So, uh, you know, prevention work is a lot of times educating people. Yep. So that I, they know. I think that's true. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, one of the other 
areas where there's been a nice success is um, tobacco with kids. Mm-hmm. You know, um, last month President Trump signed legislation to amend the Food and Drug Act, and it's going to increase the minimum age for buying tobacco to age 21. That's a tremendous change, you know. You know, we see tobacco now set put out of the reach of kids in stores. There's a big cultural change there too. You know, that's after years of seeming indifference to you know this major public health problem. Um, so this is like that dramatic change around underage drinking that kids are are smoking less. Right. Um, but you know, there's that happen, has happened more broadly th- through society. You know, things like smoke-free areas, mass media campaigns as part of the prevention work. Tobacco prices are higher, and kids are kind of frozen out of the market. They're not going to buy tobacco. It costs so much. Um, there's an increased access to commit quitting tobacco programs that have been helpful. There's a lot of things that go together in these integrated programs to, to do that. You know, tobacco is still killing about 480,000 Americans every year. It's getting better. 50 years ago, 42% of the population smoked. That dropped to 21% by 2005. It was down even further in 2017 where it was under 13%. Wow. No, it was under 14%. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I'm amazed at that too. That's you know, huge. Yeah. You know, in, in both those areas, the adults haven't fared as well mm-hmm. as the kids, and they continue to drink more and smoke more than they used to. Um so those success stories are mostly about our youth, and I guess that's what we we care about the most. Absolutely. Hopefully, right. we're that's where we're making the impact. Yeah, there's a caveat here. You know, there's been a tremendous upswell in use of vaping, both nicotine and marijuana, THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, the active ingredient in marijuana. Right. So that's been tough. You know, there's some federal hurdles about research into marijuana that make it tough for researchers. So we don't have some very good definition of the problems. You know, and there's a tremendous effort in this country to legalize recreational marijuana or medical marijuana, which might make people think, well, if if it's medical, that's good for you, right? But it doesn't seem to be good. But we don't have a way to be real clear about that message. And so vaping has come along, and here's another confused message. Here's a good way to quit smoking or not smoke. And you end up with nicotine in a higher concentration than you might have from a cigarette. Right, or you're utilizing it from a, a vendor that's very suspect or you're right. not regulated very well as to what you're getting. Yeah, you may get a very high concentration and get it develop a habit very quickly. Right, right. Yeah, and teens are, are picking vaping up in awful kinds of numbers. Um, one of the things that it's hard to evaluate is just recently this awareness that People are dying after vaping uh, marijuana products, right. you know, and that not sure why that's going. There, people are not sure why that's going on, but maybe that'll have some effect on those that uptake and using marijuana. I hope. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. You hope there's something to be learned from that. Right, but it's probably too, probably too soon to tell where that's going yet. What else is going on in prevention that you'd like us to know, Dick? Well, Any, I think anything in, say, in the Fremont County or that the coalition is working on that are particularly focused on? Well, I talked about the, the survivors of suicide loss. That's yep. one of the things that's near and dear to me. Um, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about you know what what seems to succeed in prevention. We've talked about mm-hmm. 
some of the areas that kind of change some of the community expectations, availability of, of products that, you know, alcohol or tobacco. Um, but th- there's some prevention efforts, you know, and looking at s- some of the research, it seems like some of the other programs have been successful in prevention, you know, focus on coping skills, decision skills, mm-hmm. problem-solving skills, relational skills, things that are useful for more than just whether you're going to use or Absolutely. not. Absolutely, right. yeah. Those things that promote family stability, one of the things that's been identified as being helpful in prevention around substance abuse is parents' involvement with their kids, telling them that they don't want them using. Mm-hmm. They want them to not to abstain from alcohol or tobacco or marijuana or other drugs. So those things that promote family life and promote that, those those are I like like to see those going on. Um, you know, I think if schools would spend some time on those relational skills, you know, it's not all just about science, technology, you, um, whatever E was in math. Right, right. <laughs> Engineering and exactly. math. Exactly. Right. Yeah. No, that's probably, we could probably spend an entire, uh, another mm-hmm. entire podcast on, on things that could be done in schools that, you know, trying to fight the, uh, whether it's Common Core or certain standards, or you know, they had to get away from things that are actually more life skills, and right. not not. And those life skills really are crucial. Um, we see it even, you know, just a little tangent is here at the college where I work. Um, you know, a lot of unprepared youth coming right. in, and it's it's not so much academically preparedness; it's it's life skills, relational skills. Now yep. to get along. Yep. Yep. Well, and those things are important to maintaining family life, and yep. family life is important for how you do th- how you do this oh. and how you stay substance abuse free. Absolutely, yeah. uh, and and that's a major prevention. I mean, helping them educate them as early as possible on on strategies and things that they can do is right. is huge. Yeah, I, I think mean, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, one of the things we learned recently is you know, talking to. Becky Parker, who's the clinical director from Fremont Counseling, is that when they identify people who are suicidal, if they are saying, I'm not going to go to treatment, they can be detained and compelled to enter treatment and you hope hope save their lives. Mm -hmm. People who are suicidal and say, yeah, I'll go to treatment, um, there's no way to get them there sometimes. You know, if Mm -hmm. their family doesn't have the money to buy gasoline, they don't have a working car, those makes it really difficult to get them, which is seems like an odd thing to happen in the county that's near the top of the state that's at the top of the awful statistics. Right, right. So we've formed a, a committee in our, in our suicide prevention task force to take a look at that and see if there's ways we can find it to, to assist that. We recently met with our com- county association of governments and asked them for some guidance. We've got some ideas and we're going to keep meeting and pressing that we've got a i guess we're starting a wonderful brainstorm about how we might do that sure so i i hope that's that's going to going to succeed in in finding it easier to get people you know since our local psychiatric hospital or wing in the hospital closed people have to go somewhere else they have to you know and none of them are nearer than 100 miles away right yeah that's a significant event we've got some efforts I, I sit on the local solutions committee here in Riverton in which we're talk. we focus primarily on substance abuse and but there's so many co-occurring things with substance abuse such as depression and and other uh, mental health disorders and and I think having a, a lack of of treatment 
whether it's mental health treatment, addictions treatment, uh, and anything in between is is we're really short on that here, and and that's a significant. I gotta believe it's a significant reason why our statistics are so high. Yeah, that you know, one of the things that I think suicide begets suicide. You know, suicide contagion is a common thing. We had a suicide epidemic here about 30, 35 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, those things happen in, in community. They have a lot of resource, too, you know. Right. But one of the things I became aware of, I read an interesting book, A History of Suicide and the Philosophies, I think it was against it, by uh, a Jennifer Michael Hecht. And she said that, you know, and I, and I mentioned that, you know, the kids of parents who die from suicide before that child is 18 or five times as likely. Ms. Heck, you know, says that surviving your dark night of the soul and not yielding to a suicidal urge ought to be considered the equivalent of running into a burning building to save a child's life. Because one of the things that happens is, as I say, suicide begets suicide. We have a high rate. There's been some look at our recent high rates here. They don't seem to be connected, but we sure have the culture. You know, it's been identified here that because people don't reach out, you know, we've got a strong ethic about do it, pull up do it alone. Boots, pull, up, pull up your bootstraps. Yeah, do it on your own, you know, don't reach out. But that's an important skill, you know. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about cowboys, you know, they, they don't rope by themselves. They rope in teams, don't they? Mm-hmm. Right. If you're on a basketball team, that's a team effort. There's yep. no me in team. But, yeah. It's important to reach out, and it, it's tough to do that. Right. It's important for people to reach back, too. You know, I recently visited with a person about, we are looking at um, transportation issues, and I said, what else are you thinking? He said, you know, when people are thinking about suicide, they've lost their perspective. It's important for people to check back and look and ask. You know, the thing we talked about, QPR, question, persuade, and review. It's important to keep an eye on our community. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just the person who's thinking about suicide who needs to reach out. We need to reach out to our fellow citizens as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So how does a person get into prevention and counseling work, Dick? Talk, maybe tell me a little bit about how you got started, why, I mean, the passion that you've shared a little bit with your own family background and, and the impact of your family. But what, what else, you know, any recommendations you would make for people who want to get into the field? Well, I started college thinking I wanted to help be, be a helper. And so I looked at the helping, helping professions, and what it seemed to be most obvious to me is to get into psychology. So I first got a bachelor's and then a master's degree from the University of Wyoming. And then um, started in the field. You know, my first job was teaching non-ambulatory, non-ambulatory children who had developmental delays to walk, talk, and use the toilet. Mm. As well, I finished my degree. Mm-hmm. finished my thesis and then I came I spent my t- time at the pen you know St. Joseph's Fremont counseling so those are ways but you know if people there are other helping professions that people ought to consider too counseling there's school counselors there's vocational counselors there's a lot of ways that people can counsel one of the things um, I think that's one of the degrees that I think opens the most doors for people is the masters in social work the MSW mm-hmm. Uh, I think Wyoming's MSW program is now lodged in Casper. It's a UW program, but I think it, it's served out of Casper. I think that opens the most doors. People can work in, work in the most settings, whether it's school or a mental health center. I th- 
I've always been impressed with what those people can do. Sure. Um, you know, it might be worthwhile mentioning your work, Lance, with the Mental Health Professions Licensing Board. On top of my master's degree in psych, I also had to get a, a, a license uh, to be a professional mental health counselor. Right, right. And I'm sure you looked right. at my application years ago. <laughs> yep. I've, I've, I've been on the board for almost 15 years, and uh, it's, it's – uh, you know, the licensure is the highest standard in Wyoming for being able to practice independently. So um, eventually, and at that master's level, um, it's a, a key. There's a lot of things you can do at the bachelor's and even the associate's level in, in mental health care uh, and prevention. So, you know, we definitely want to encourage people to, uh, to look into that helping field. You mentioned it. You know, a lot of people say, I want to help. And there's a variety of ways. There's and there's little niches: uh, social work, counseling, psychology, but also working in DFS and prevention. And and there's just any number of areas. The key is just finding your niche. And and even you don't have to do it forever. There's you've you've kicked around in a variety of of areas. We all have a tendency to kick around in a variety of areas. And they've been neat. And everyone I left, I look back, whether it was, a, I guess, maybe a race I ran in high school, I could have run that faster. Right. I could have done that job better. But, sure. yeah. But, you know, there's a variety of areas where you guys license, license marriage and family, yep. a licensed professional counselor, substance abuse. And so, social work. Social work, yep. yeah. The four, four, those, the four right. professions. Yeah. Right. Well, I really want to thank you, Dick, uh, for joining me today and, and discussing prevention and really going – We covered a variety of areas. I, I hope our listeners will consider what they can do both personally, but also to support our organizations in our communities uh, it, to better prevent issues before they become serious. Uh, I think that's a, uh, an amazing opportunity for people to be able to get involved, uh, whether you have a degree or not, is if you are interested in being involved, reach out uh, to the local prevention a community and uh, offer to be a, of an assistance. So as my listeners know, I always end my podcast with a challenge on actions you can take based on what we have talked about. So this week, here is my challenge. Prevention is, is an extremely powerful approach to mental health, uh, to alcohol, to drug issues, any, any number of areas. So intervention before a behavior becomes locked in is as much, uh, it's much easier than trying to break a bad behavior after 10 or 20 or 30 years. So let's all think about our children, but also ourselves, our friends, and our family, and find ways to prevent a serious issue from becoming worse. Challenges require action, and your action is to step forward and help those around you to intervene and prevent issues from getting worse. Your child, your friend, your family members have perhaps lost their ability to act on their issue. So step up and help. Lend them that helping hand. That's my challenge to you this week. So I want to thank you again for listening. And if you know someone struggling with their mental health, talk to them. Listen with an open mind and offer your support, or call a professional. Remember, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline number is 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. And remember, let's all be positively mental out there.